Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to turn from your turning and greeting and sit and listen. It's kind of the reverse of what you're doing now. So awesome. Super pumped to have you with us. Welcome to Cedar Mill. Uh, we are, we're glad to have you here. We are uh, deep into our Red Letter series, which is uh, looking at the teachings of Jesus and some of the interactions around Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and the Gospel of Luke. And we're pumped to have you with us. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open that up to Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Luke 18, 31. Well, have you ever noticed that uh, two different people can experience the exact same information and have totally different experiences with that information? So like when we get a coupon for Michael's, I have a very different reaction than my wife. Like I'm all for low price craft supplies. I was just never going to spend money on them to begin with. So we have really different reactions to the same information, right? The other place we see this all over the globe is in uh, is on an airplane. After the passengers have boarded, people have very different experiences with the exact same information, uh, what is called the pre-flight briefing or the uh, safety instructions, right? It's, it's the exact same information every single time, just in case you've not been in a car since 1960, and they're going to show you how to buckle a seatbelt. Same kind of thing, but you have very different experiences depending on your disposition, depending on how you feel. I happen to be one of those people that's totally optimistic about air travel on one hand. I I feel that it's totally normal for us to be in an aluminum tube with two million parts flying at 500 miles an hour at 30,000 feet. Like, that's going to work out. I just, I'm optimistic about it. I feel like these people have spent a lot of time thinking about it. It must be okay. There's also a part of me that's very pessimistic about it. And so in the event of a water landing, I'm not thinking about a flotation device. I'm pretty sure I'm just going to be with Jesus. So uh, the, there are other people, however, who feel very differently about air travel. Um, they're, they're pessimistic about air travel to begin with, and they think that there's no good reason for me to be on this plane. And so they're pretty freaked out about it. However, they're optimistic about their ability to do something in case of... Uh, an accident. And so they're listening with their ears open, right? And they're, you know, like, shh, I need to learn how to buckle my seatbelt, right? Oh, I lift up on the lever. Anyway, they're thinking through this, right? They're thinking air travel is not going to work out for them. And there might be some bit of information that they need to save their life. Same information, very different experience. Here's the point. The way we feel shapes the way we hear information, The way we feel about ourselves, the way we feel about life, the assumptions we have about reality shape the message we hear. We experience reality in a way that shapes the way we make sense of other things. Which brings us to Luke chapter 18 verse 31, where we see people having very different experiences with the exact same person. People are interacting with Jesus. He's consistent across the board and who he is and his character. And yet people have very different responses to him. People react quite differently to him. And in our Red Letter series, we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus and what it means to follow him as he travels to Jerusalem on his way to a cross. And last week, we saw this very rich guy reject Jesus. Jesus lets him walk away, doesn't he? The rich guy just pieces out. Says, I, you know, I can't give up my stuff as the means of my security. I find my validation in what I possess and I cannot give it up. And so Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, it's very, very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? How, how is this possible? And Jesus says, with, with man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. And the next verse is going to tell us how. Look at verse 31 with me. Jesus, he says, Luke says, took the 12 aside after this episode. He took them aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. The disciples did not understand any of this. The meaning or its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. I have no clue what's going on here. Luke tells us that Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. He is headed toward his destination. We know from chapter 9 he's been resolutely headed towards Jerusalem now for these, these 10 chapters. And he has been preoccupied with what is looming in the great city of Jerusalem. The eventuality of his death at the hands of the Romans. And he wants the disciples to know that what is about to happen is not an oops. It is not an accident. It is completely intentional. In fact, what's about to happen in Jerusalem, Jesus says, is central to the purpose of God in the world and that salvation is going to result from these events. He says, everything that is written in the prophets concerning the Son of Man is about to be fulfilled. It would take far too long to dissect that one sentence. Suffice to say, it would take an entire preaching series. But what is he saying to them? He's saying that... He sees himself as the answer to the question of the entire Old Testament. He's saying that if you've read your Hebrew Bible and you haven't come to the conclusion that the entire thing is about me and what I've come to do in Jerusalem, then you haven't read it right. He says, I have to die. I have to be rejected, mocked, brutalized, and killed. I have to do that to bring about the purpose of God to bring the story of Israel and therefore the whole creation back on track. He says, the world is horribly out of joint. You know this, don't you? That we've gone off the rails. The world is not as it should be. And he says, I will assume the place of everyone who has made a mess of their own life and the world, i.e. every living person. I will go assume the place of these people who've made a mess of the creation and I'll receive the penalty that is due them. I will take on death so life can reign. He says, I will go to the cross so that God can destroy evil without destroying you. And by the way, I will rise from the dead. And so... Where do you even begin to say, where do you find that in the Old Testament? Well, it's kind of throughout the entire narrative. And I'll just give you a couple places to look later today. You can go to Psalm 22 where you hear the first David look forward and point ahead to the rejection of the greater David, his son. Uh, where in Psalm 22 you see the depiction of the mockers and the people who are reviling the anointed of God. You fast forward to Isaiah 53 where we see the beautiful, brilliant picture of the suffering servant of Yahweh who takes on to himself the sin of the people and makes atonement for their evil and their wickedness. You fast forward to Daniel chapter 7 where you see the arrogance of human empires 
and contrast to the victory of the Son of Man who's given authority over all the nations and is worshipped as he sits on the throne next to the Ancient of Days. And all of these are these hints of what Jesus is saying is now being fulfilled. And he's saying this in a, in a sense. He's saying the cross is the turning point of the entire story of humankind. He says it's the vital and decisive moment that sums up God's interaction with his creation. And so Luke tells us, though, that the disciples, they don't get it. They don't get it at all. They simply miss it. It would be like me telling you, I'm going to fly to Saturn orbit a few times and be back by Tuesday. You would just look at me and be like, what? The Star Wars fans would go, does he have a hyperdrive? And we would like, it would, it would confound us. It's not humanly possible. And so they're looking at Jesus and every bit of information he's giving is bouncing right off of them back into the stratosphere. And Luke tells them that they failed to grasp it, but that they will only grasp it after he raises from the dead. They don't get it upon hearing it. They get it upon going through it. And if you're going to grasp the meaning of Jesus, if you're here today and you're checking Jesus out on any level, or if you think you've understood him, What Luke is saying in these short verses is that you don't understand Jesus unless you grasp that uh, that Jesus can only be understood in light of what he's come to do. That the only way to view Jesus properly is to view him through the lens of his death and resurrection. That at the center of the picture of who Jesus is is not that he's a profound teacher or that he's a great moral example, but that Jesus has given his life as a sacrifice and he's been raised as a victor. He says, if you don't see that, you don't see Jesus. Now we come to the story that we'll look at today, or rather that we'll let look at us, where we see what kind of faith actually grasps Jesus for who he really is, where we look at the kind of faith that, that's perceptive to the reality of Jesus. Take a look at me, at me with, with me at verse 35. Verse 35 So as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked, what's happening? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him. And told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped. And he ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now, what a story. There's three things I want to show you this morning. First is the blindness of the crowd, and then the the sight of the blind man, and then last, the results of seeing. First, I want to show you the, the blindness of the crowd. What's happening here? Well, you can imagine the scene. Right? This seems quite imaginable. You, you have Jesus, he's traveling with a crowd of people, and he comes to Jericho, and Jericho is kind of like the final rest stop before you get to the big city. 
right? It's the last little oasis before you climb the great ascent up to where Jerusalem is. It's kind of your last potty stop. Fill up the tank and go on with your journey. And so he pulls off the road to Jericho and he he finds his beggar. And the beggar's making the scene. And we've all seen this before where there's that kind of that person who's making a scene. Uh, and beggars in the first century, by the way, were regarded about as highly as beggars are regarded in the 21st century. This is a social nobody. In the eyes of society, the blind man is actually invisible. He's a beggar. And so he notices that there's a crowd, that there's commotion. And so he says, what's going on? What's all, what's all of the noise? And so they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so he responds. He cries out, actually. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But what does the crowd do? What does any good Jesus following crowd do when there's a need? Shut up. That's what they like. Shh. Sorry, there's kids in the room. My kids aren't allowed to say that. I forgot that you were here for a second. Very bad crowd, right? Don't do what they do. Learn the lesson from the story. They say, they say, shh. They rebuke this guy. Don't talk. Jesus is passing by. How about that for a crowd of Jesus following people? Right? This is, this is a sad deal. Sadly, this isn't just a cautionary tale. This crowd is a great mirror. When you hold up the mirror, what we see is actually a little bit scary. This community around Jesus, now just as it is then, it can so easily silence the cries of those who most need him. Because the cries of the people who are desperate in our world often alter our own course. They turn us aside from our very important agendas. See, look what's going on here. He inquires as to the commotion and the crowd is content to offer information. But they're unwilling to give this guy transformation. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. They give him the information, but they give him no access to experience Jesus of Nazareth. They fail to offer him transformation. This is probably something akin to just, you know, a Christian bumper sticker. I mean, have any of you? Been stuck in traffic behind somebody going too slow and you thought, oh, that's the meaning of my life. Information without transformation. If you're a bumper sticker person, no offense intended. I'm just saying we might need a little bit more than just the right information. There's always this temptation for Christian people to reduce the living word of God that is a person who transforms to reduce the living word of God into sound bites from the written word of God into mere ideas that inform to take a person that transforms and reduce them down to just ideas that inform. This temptation is always before us because we think sometimes that if, if only this person had the right information, everything would be changed. All right. If they only had the right answers, This is a far cry from the transforming experience of truth. See, giving information is very convenient. We can do it without any cost to ourselves. It's passed off quite effortlessly and it requires very little from us. Oh, you're struggling with this. Well, if you would just, right? I see that you're part of this lifestyle, but don't you know? Fill in your blank. Whatever it is for you, right? Don't you know? 
And it's always other people. We want to fix other people. And if we wanted to fix other people, it's like, oh, well, just if they would only know this, right? They could only see this. I hope this isn't hitting too close to home for you, right? But the the transformation takes far more, doesn't it? It takes more from us. It requires something from us. It requires that we alter our course, that we give time and attention and listen, that we ourselves might be changed. Uh, transformation requires that we get out of the grace the way so that grace can be experienced. And so there's this temptation to give information without transformation. But the crowd simply doesn't have time. Listen to their response. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. In other words, Jesus breaks for no one. Right? Jesus is not breaking for you. We are not stopping here. Jesus is not pulling off the road for you. And so, so, so this is the other temptation in the crowd. There's always a temptation to live for our own importance at the expense of being inconvenienced. Let me tell you what I mean here. When we see ourselves, when we see our schedules, when we see our agendas as ultimately important, we will very seldomly welcome people who are inconvenient. If it doesn't serve my sense of importance... I'm not going to pay attention to it. I, um, I know that this is true. Some of you are thinking, well, I, I, that sounds true in theory. I know it's true in action for you because it's true in action for me. This, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, this happened, right? This happened to me where, where some, somebody actually really needed us. And uh, I love the way my wife knew and preempted all of my really self-righteous excuse making. And so she goes, hey, Matt. Um, before you say anything, uh, I just need you to know I've thought about all the implications and I've been praying about this all day. So-and-so wants us to take their kids, you know, overnight for the next blah, 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 blah. I thought, okay, she has totally trumped me, right? Because you know, she knows. I'm going to say, well, I'm, I'm just concerned about you. I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, margin for our kids. We've been going really busy. I don't know. I, this last time this happened, this didn't go so well. And she knows how concerned I can be for other people. <laughs> so she says, I've been praying about this all day. Checkmate, right? She knows. Because when we're on a treadmill of our own importance, our own busyness, our own schedule, we will not receive inconvenience very gladly. And so this man is inconvenient. He takes up space in the margins, but there isn't any room in the crowd. Did you hear that? There's space at the margins, but there's no room in the crowd. How many of us have had experiences of church like that? Where uh, there's room outside, but no room belonging among the ones who call themselves followers of Jesus. This is an important lesson for us. See, they're, the crowd's with Jesus. They're with them. They're traveling with them. They're important in their own eyes. And they attempt to silence this inconvenient and unimportant voice. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Anyone who sits at the margins and when you see them, you think, Oh, no, I don't have time for your needs. I don't. I have something else going on that's far too important. This crowd is blind to the blind man. It's remarkable. The crowd's too important for the inconvenience of the margins. And I think, I think, it's not that we don't care. It's that we know care 
costs. And so when we see something that's going to require care, it's going to require costs. So we want to go like this. Not right now, please. And yet, this is what we see all over our country. where We have ignored underserved communities that cry out. They want opportunities. They want justice where the powerful and the well-off and the, un- and the important of the world just pass by. Where some people's American dream becomes another community's American nightmare. And there's these symptoms that come from this place of saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. I'm here in the margins. So here's the question for us. Where am I like this crowd? Where are the places in my heart and in my habits where I'm like this crowd, where I am content to pass off information without transformation where maybe as a parent do i just want to change the behavior and so i'm going to launch at you with some information instead of sit with you and think through what is happening deep down where as a co-worker do i just want to avoid the nuisance of this person and so i could just try to fix them with information where am i like this crowd where i'm too important to be inconvenienced by the cries that come from the margins of this world Where am I too ready to just pass off the broken and the desperate needs of that one family member, that one co-worker, that one person, that one community? But let's look at Jesus for a second. What does he do? What's he do in this story? He says he stops, right? He stops. And then what does he do? He orders the crowd to bring the blind man to him. Pay pay attention to this. I love this because Jesus knows that the blind man needs to be healed, but he equally knows wisely that the crowd needs to be healed. The blind man needs to be healed of his blindness, but the crowd needs to be healed of their blindness. And so he orders them to participate in the healing of the blind man. He says, you guys get involved. You bring him to me. See, they need to see that they are meant to be a part of his healing. See, Jesus reroutes the concerns of the crowd. They were so important going with Jesus, but Jesus and where he's going is actually to the margins. And so he says, go with me there. The crowd needs to move towards the man, not just to tell them that Jesus is passing by, but to offer him access to Jesus. And the difference between information and transformation is simply engagement, involvement, participation. And Jesus uses the crowd to bring about grace in this man's life are you willing to take orders from jesus the rerouting agenda mixing orders of jesus to participate and to partner with him in the healing of the broken lives around you jesus is saying look he's saying church you are the crowd i've sent to bring the hurting to me See, Jesus could snap his fingers from the throne of heaven. He could do that. He could just say with the mighty power of his word that all evil be eradicated and everything be fixed. He could do it. And yet, astoundingly, and maybe even foolishly, he chooses to do it through you and me. He reroutes the crowd because he knows that part of our healing is being caught up in hearing from the broken and caring 
and bringing them to Jesus because we're just as broken. And so he orders us to engage, to participate in people bringing others to himself. You simply can't do that if you're too important to be concerned with the inconvenient. This goes back to the fact that we act and receive messages based on how we feel. Maybe we think, I have no business interacting with people. I have nothing to offer. And yet he says, the very thing you have to offer is access to me. And that's enough. And so, what did Jesus see in the crowd? What did Jesus see in the broken? What did Jesus see in himself? He saw that the crowd was able to participate. He saw in this broken man a a, a chance for redemption. And he saw in himself the power to give it. Do you see yourself as a partner with Jesus and his work of grace in the world? See, we have to learn to become inconvenienced. So where's Jesus saying, stop and go and bring them to me, partner with me? Let me tell you this, friends. Don't be too important. Because if you are, you will miss out on the true importance that's only found down in the dirt of inconvenience. So the next thing I want to show you, though, that's the blindness of the crowd. But what about the sight of the blind man? What do we see in him? I, I want to point something out here that's in the text. It's, it's one of G- Luke's great reversals. If you've been reading through Luke, you notice that he's always reversing things. It's the rich and the powerful that are somehow confounded and on the, on the outside. And it's, it's the poor and the marginalized that are finding their way into the kingdom. And they're making these great discoveries and being included and sitting at Jesus' table. And so this man sees what's happening before he ever physically sees He's perceptive, and so he asks the crowd, what's happening? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But he says, what? What does he call Jesus? Jesus, son of David. See, the crowd refers to Jesus in general terms. He's Jesus of Nazareth. It's where Jesus is from. But the blind man refers to Jesus as son of David in messianic terms. He sees him as his rescuer, as the anointed of God. He's something in particular. He's something special. The crowd refers to the Jesus of history. The man refers to the Jesus of faith by his kingly title. Do you know that the son of David is it's like a really cool phrase? Okay, let's geek out for just a second. Why is son of David such an important phrase? It, it doesn't just mean da- Jesus' lineage, that he's from this family tracing back to David. Son of David is a particularly important phrase that would have resonated with any Israelite on the street in the first century. When they heard son of David, it would have brought to mind the great hope of Israel, promised in 2 Samuel 7. You can say that with me, 2 Samuel 7. It's really fun to say. It has three S's. So... Uh, 2 Samuel 7 is a great passage that looks forward to the mighty act of God to install a son of David on the throne of David to establish God's eternal kingdom and bless all the nations. And so if you read through the Old Testament story, you turn the page and Solomon is born and Solomon is a raging disappointment. And then Solomon's son is in even greater disappointment. And the, the, the chain reaction of, of awful kings just spirals until Israel goes into exile. And then Matthew picks up the gospel and he says, Jesus, the Messiah, right? The son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And Luke is pointing out that Jesus is this Messiah, the son of David, the agent through whom God would finally rescue his people and bring God's justice and his rule and his righteousness. Son of David means Messiah. And so what does this man do? He calls him the Messiah. He identifies Jesus for who he is. And then he asks for mercy. Who do you ask for mercy? You ask Yahweh, God in person for mercy. It's his trait. It's his attribute. Much like David, the historical David, when he says in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. What is David doing? He's appealing to the character of God instead of appealing to our performance. We struggle with that. When we come to God so often, we go, well, okay, I've been doing better, and I I wish you would kind of pay me back for that extra good I've been doing. And we appeal on the basis of our record, but not the gospel. The gospel says, no, you appeal to God on the basis of his character. And so that's what this man's doing. He sees who Jesus is, he's the Messiah, and then he asks for what God gives, which is mercy, and he gets it because he's appealing to the nature and the character of God. Look what Jesus says in return. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Um, Isn't that kind of obvious? Like, he's blind. Here's what's funny about this. I think, given a chance to respond to that question, I don't know that we would pick our most obvious need. Would we? See, what happens when people get what they want usually? Good idea, bad idea? It's typically not a good idea, right? It usually doesn't work out for them very well when people get what they want. It's a profound question. He has the man identify. Where are you? What is it that you think you want? And he could have asked for power. He could have asked for money. He could have asked for position. But he asked for sight. I think it's funny that he asked for sight. I mean, yes, this is his greatest need. It's very obvious to us from the outside, like, I need to see. But many times, we don't see our greatest need. We think, maybe, maybe my greatest need is for my tr- circumstances to change. My greatest need is, we rarely see ourselves in the context of our greatest need, which is spiritual, which is reconciliation with our creator. And so, he says, what do you want? He says, I want to see, but I want to make sure you get this. Because when he says, I want to see... He knows what Jesus' job description is. He knows the messianic job description from Isaiah 61. Back in Isaiah 61, there's this promise of the Messiah, the spirit-anointed Messiah who will come and bring sight to the blind, freedom to the captives. And what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 4 when he shows up to the synagogue? He reads Isaiah 61. He says... I'm the spirit-anointed messianic king who will what? Restore sight to the blind, set freedom to the captives. And he says, all of this is fulfilled in your hearing. And so, you know, there's been like this hashtag, sight to the blind, filling up the Twitter sphere, right? In first century Palestine or whatever, right? Word's gotten out. He knows that this is on his job description list. He's like, oh, wow. And so what is he saying when he says, I want to see? He's saying this, he's saying... I am part of the people that you have come to rescue. He says, I'm standing on the solid ground of people in great need of what you come to offer. He says, I'm part of the blind that you've come to give sight to. And he's saying, I recognize your sufficiency 
to give me what my greatest need is. Do you see yourself like that? Do you see yourself standing on the ground of people in need? Right? We tend to see ourselves as rather independent, don't we? I kind of got this until I don't, right? And so I think, you know, if Jesus were to ask a great deal of us what we want, we'd probably say, I want to, you know, I want to feel better about myself. I want my problems to go away. I want distraction from the things that make me feel unhappy. But we learn from this blind man who sees. We learn that when we desire what Jesus has come to give, we get it and we get it in spades. But when we foist our misguided desires on Jesus, we'll often find ourselves waiting and unfulfilled. And he says, if it's actually the deepest level of of healing that you desire, if it's actually deep transformational love, acceptance, and grace, and abundant life, then you've come to the right place. But if you just want distraction, you can go on down the road seeking. Again, we find ourselves at a crossroads, don't we? Our our response to Jesus will be totally dependent on our willingness to see our blindness and on our need. Our transparency about our need for healing will shape the kind of response we have to Jesus. He'll either be the son of David, the Messiah to us, or he'll just be some intriguing bit of information. He'll be intriguing information for you if you're middle class in spirit, if you're kind of doing okay. But if you're poor in spirit, he'll be of ultimate value to you. You'll see that he's sufficient, that his mercy is exactly why he's come, to go to the cross, to rise again, to heal our greatest blindness, which is spiritual blindness, which is caused by sin. So he's overcome that in his death and his resurrection, and that's why he's come. So let me ask you this. Where are you desperate for the mercy of Jesus? Is he the son of David to you today, or just kind of Jesus of Nazareth? Because he comes to set the world right one heart at a time to draw you into his kingdom and to bring you his peace and his rule. So cry out to him today and appeal to his character just to give mercy. Let me show you one last thing today. That's the results of seeing. So we've seen the the blindness of the crowd and the way Jesus reorients us to the margins. And we've seen the sight of the blind man that he sees that Jesus has actually come to save and that he's sufficient to do it and that he has great need but once you've seen that, how, what is the result of that? What, what comes from seeing? Well, healing comes at the word of Jesus. It's remarkable. Jesus heals with the word, which is what we see in the gospel, that the proclamation of what God's done is how God brings about his healing in our life and in our world. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So God affects our healing through the proclamation of his good news And, of course, our receptivity to it. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. The means by which we embrace what God does for us is always and only trust. Explicit faith that pervades our life. And the results of seeing are profound. Look at this. Once the man sees, what does he do? What's he do? He immediately follows Jesus, praising God. I want to point something out to you. This word, followed. It kind of just sounds boring in English, but in Greek, it's, just, it's in the imperfect tense, which means that there's a continuing action implied. It is not a complete action. In other words, he kept on following Jesus. This is important for us because so often to us, Christianity is more about a decision, but Jesus is saying it's actually about continuing. That Christian faith is less about deciding and far more about continuing. 
after Jesus, continuing on a path after him, going where he leads, imitating what he does and becoming who he is. One scholar I read this week and is worth repeating said this, said insight into Jesus is meaningless apart from obedience. How do you you like that? Insight into Jesus is meaningless apart from obedience. In other words, the result of sight or insight into Jesus has to be believing obedience or else we've missed it. I talked to a guy recently. He came in for counseling and some areas of his life and, uh, and we met many hours and he was really interested in what is God's will for my life? Well, we talked about that a little bit. We kept coming back to what God's will was in his life which he's completely disinterested in. Like, so loving your wife as Christ loved the church. That's God's will for your life. I'm not interested in that. I want to know what God's will is for my life. Like, okay, it's actually staying with your spouse right now and serving this person. Yeah, I know, but what? Because here's the reality. So often we struggle. We look for the next thing that God wants for us, the next thing that's exciting that God has for us, while we ignore the last thing that God spoke clearly to us. Oh, I'm not so interested in that. That's kind of boring and that's a little too costly. I want something exciting, right? And so we need to be careful that we don't theorize God's will when it's always meant to be practiced and put into action. And so I kind of left that conversation saying, well, bro, I can't help you unless you actually want to do something with what Jesus has said. See, Jesus didn't show up teaching us how to have Bible studies and set up great, profound Bible studies. I love Bible studies. I, ha, I have my Bible software open 24-7 on my laptop, and yet Jesus didn't come for that. He came to make disciples, to teach his disciples how to live, not just think. Thinking's important, and that's a part of it. But he commissioned the uh, disciples to make disciples who would obey all that he commanded. And so the results of seeing Jesus, the results of responding to him and faith based on our need and based on his greatness is that we follow in obedience. Our lives become signposts that he's leading us rather than our own ego, our own fear, our own insight, but the living God. So where are you today? Let's close here. Where are you today? Where are you in need today of moving from a place of spiritual blindness to a place of spiritual obedience, of following and continuing to follow, even if it's hard. Where are you today? Where are the areas where God's maybe waiting on your obedience? You're saying, what's next? And he's saying, what's next is the last thing I said. I'd like you to be interested in that. And this obedience, is is it about earning? It's not about earning. It's about showing. Right? We don't obey to earn favor, grace, or love. We obey to show His grace in our lives. We obey as a result of His grace in our lives, as a result of what He's done in loving us. Obedience flows from this place of having already been so remarkably loved and accepted that it transforms what we desire. That I desire His kingdom above mine. And one of the great ways to celebrate this is through communion, that we celebrate at the table his grace that's extended freely, that he's loved us to the point of his death on our behalf. We celebrate that at communion. It's a chance to obey and to praise, to come to the table saying, God, I want to surrender my life. I want to praise you for what you've done for me, that you saw my blindness and you overcame it, that you 
have seen me on the margins and you've moved towards me and that you've engaged me in this story of partnering with you for your grace in the world. And so as the band comes up, I want to encourage you today to come to the table singing. Like, come, let's praise our way to the table. I said this during first service. I'll say it again. I think that in the first century, communion was kind of like the Christian dessert. I mean, it's wine and carbs for crying out loud. I mean, guys, we're doing grape juice and a little cracker. That's a, it's not quite the dessert and party atmosphere of the first century, but we can bring the spirit of that atmosphere together as we praise God for what he's done and we take the bread that represents his body given for us and drink the cup that represents his blood shed for us and we praise him living lives intended and aimed at obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who is the great son of David, the anointed, the king, and as king is not our assistant, but is our Lord. And we want to come bowing ourselves before you, open to the affirmation of your love, the transformation in our hearts by your grace, and the result of a fruitful lives of, of obedience and praise that are signposts to our world that you're present and good and that you're on the throne and that is good news for the world. So we come praising you today in Jesus' name. Amen. The tables are open. Friends, come and receive communion and worship.